Well, as Nicole and our youngest disciples set up so beautifully, today is the third week in our Lenten sermon series on the core stories of the Bible. And today's story is the story of the Sinai Covenant, which we also call the Ten Commandments. So in our first story, God called Abraham and Sarah to be the parents of a great nation. And then after their descendants were enslaved in Egypt, God liberated the Hebrew people through a series of events we call the Exodus. After that, the people in the wilderness had to figure out what it meant for them, both as individuals and also as a community, to be defined by their relationship with God who had liberated them. So three days after leading the people out of Egypt, Moses and the people arrive at Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountain and receives these instructions from God, rules to govern them and teach them how to live together in peace and to uphold the covenant. These are the laws that we call the Ten Commandments, and we'll hear the version today that we find in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, be with us, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit to shine a light on these words that we will hear today, to help us to see how they are relevant to every moment of our lives, and especially to our life together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Years ago, when our kids were young, we decided the time had come to begin holding regular family meetings. The idea came from one of my favorite parenting experts at the time, Christine Carter, who made the case that family meetings are a great way to strengthen relationships and help all the pieces of a family's life to come together more smoothly. Something to make our life run more smoothly? Yes, please. I would have tried anything. Carter had three recommendations for how to run a good family meeting. First, she said, make the first meeting 100% positive, since you want everyone to leave the meeting excited for the next one. Second, you've got to make family meetings fun. Carter recommended serving dessert and making sure the fun items for discussion outnumber any difficult items. Finally, keep meetings consistent and predictable, and eventually, they will run themselves. It all seemed like such a good idea. But during our first family meeting, I don't think anyone had even finished one cookie before things went south. One of the kids made a snarky comment about a sibling, and this quickly led to bickering. Derek kept glancing at his cell phone and telling me we really needed to wrap things up to get the kids to bed on time. And it turns out that even serving cookies doesn't make it fun to divvy up household chores. Family meetings at our house were an epic fail. In today's scripture, we are listening in to the very first family meeting of God's chosen people. Apparently, God did not read Christine Carter's three recommendations for an effective family meeting. Because when God gives these laws to Moses, there is no attempt to sugarcoat them or put them in the positive rather than the negative or just make them more palatable. God doesn't ask Moses and the people to workshop the laws together and come up with mutually acceptable rules like a teacher might do on the first day of a new school year. And there are certainly no cookies to make these commandments easier to swallow. Only manna and quail day after day after day for 40 long years in the wilderness. There is no getting around it. Being God's people, God's family, means living according to God's rules. This is the fundamental assumption of the Sinai covenant. God says, I will be your God. I will hear your cries. I will liberate you from oppression. I will love you unconditionally. And you will be my people, which means living according to my rules. Now, I can hear the question that just popped into your head. How can God love us unconditionally if that love comes with expectations that certain rules must be followed? This is the dilemma of law and grace, and the Apostle Paul spends most of the book of Romans trying to explain it. A somewhat more accessible explanation comes from the Lutheran pastor David Loess, who likes to say that when it comes to the relationship between law and grace, 19 comes before 20. 
What he means by this is that the relationship between God and people must come before the law. Only after the relationship is established does God make demands on the people's behavior by giving them rules to live by. We hear evidence of this in Exodus when God says to the people, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, the Exodus emancipation and the Sinai covenant belong inextricably together. This is in order to, the Exodus is in order to establish the new obedience of Sinai. The new obedience at Sinai is possible only because of the Exodus. 19 comes before 20. Relationship establishes the trust and accountability required to submit to the rules that enable God's people to live in harmony with God and with each other. Amanda Ripley is a trained conflict mediator who's written a book on conflict and co-founded a company that helps people fight more intelligently. She recently wrote an article about the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, the only House committee in the last Congress required to get a supermajority vote of its members to get things done. It was a bipartisan committee, which made that difficult. Evenly split, six Republicans, six Democrats, and its mission was deceptively simple, to make recommendations for how Congress could function more effectively. For an institution widely viewed as hopelessly dysfunctional, this was a tall order. The chair, Democrat Derek Kilmer, decided to start by meeting one-on-one -on -one with each member of the committee and finding out what they wanted to work on. Unfortunately, the answer with every person he sat down with was nothing. I don't want to be in the same room with my colleagues across the aisle, much less work together with them. In her article, Ripley notes that in many ways, this resistance is by design. Partisanship is baked into the Capitol building itself, which has virtually no drop-in workspace where members from different parties can have a casual conversation without cameras around. In the hearing rooms, members sit separately, Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other. Outside the hearing rooms, the antechambers and cloakrooms are segregated by party. There are almost no opportunities for members and staff to see each other as complicated humans with families, doubts, questions, and regrets. In spite of these obstacles, Kilmer pressed on, working closely with his vice chair, Republican Tom Graves, to do things differently. Before the committee started their work, they held a bipartisan retreat. Instead of having two separate teams of staffers, they had one bipartisan team. But then came January 6, 2021. After that, the members of the committee doubled down on their refusal to work with their colleagues across the aisle. The conflict seemed entrenched and intractable. Kilmer and Graves knew if they did not heal relationships, 
they would never be able to get those committee members to work together. So they consulted different organizational and conflict specialists and brought in a professional mediator to lead a session of the committee. During that session, each person got time to share their experience of January 6th. Ripley writes that even as the committee members continue to bitterly disagree about many things, the simple experience of being heard was cathartic. It felt like someone turned the air conditioning on, one member said. You saw people starting to be curious about each other again. Kilmer and Graves didn't stop there. When the committee met to do its work, they did things differently than any other committee in Congress. Instead of having the members sit high on a dais above those who came to testify, everyone sat in a round table format, all on the same level with guests who testified to the committee. And seating was integrated so that Democrats and Republicans sat next to each other instead of separate from each other. And the committee shared a meal together every few weeks. One member eventually said, I learned more in one hour in a modernization committee hearing than weeks sitting in every other committee. We learned by conversation, not confrontation. It was the most profoundly meaningful and gratifying time I've spent in Congress. Ultimately, the committee got work done and made significant recommendations to improve Congress including more bipartisan dinners and nonpartisan programming that was integrated into the most recent new member orientation. Ripley concludes, here is the secret to making an organization function in a time of deep division. Spend time together and talk about things. 19 comes before 20. Relationships before rules. Even more than a simple set of rules to live by, the Ten Commandments are an identity statement meant to guide and uphold our relationships to God and to each other. The commandments teach us that our identity in God, that we proclaim by worshiping God alone, rejecting idols, honoring God's name, and the concept of Sabbath, this identity forms the foundation and motivation for our relationships with one another. The basis of the people's relationship with God is the Exodus, and as they live into their newfound freedom, the commandments establish what that freedom is for, creating a community of people who care for one another according to God's ways. Because living in a community, living as a family, it's hard. Years ago, Pope Francis pleaded for unity in front of the U.S. Congress by highlighting lawmakers' responsibilities. Politics, he said, is an expression of our need to live as one in order to build as one the greatest common good a community which sacrifices particular interests in order to share in justice and peace its goods, its interests, its social life. I don't know whether the Pope had the Ten Commandments in mind when he said this, 
but building the greatest common good by creating a community which sacrifices individual interests for the sake of the whole is exactly what the Ten Commandments invite us to do. The first four commandments focus on our relationship with God, the rest on how we treat and live with each other. Another way to think about this is that the commandments have both a vertical and a horizontal component. Those directing our relationship with God are oriented vertically, and those directing our relationships with each other are oriented horizontally. The commandments are also written singularly. They are not addressed to y'all, but to you. But following them has implications for us all. One scholar writes, the commandments paint a picture of a community, one in which the name of the Lord will be honored, in which there will be work and rest in turn, in which life and faithfulness will be valued. When we live by these rules to honor God and each other, it has implications for how we live together as the family of faith we call the church. According to Brueggemann, the covenant construct requires us to think afresh about the character and business of the church. The church is the community attentive to the dangers and possibilities of solidarity in a culture which thrives on and celebrates our divisions and isolations. The church is the community attentive to the dangers and possibilities of solidarity in a culture which thrives on and celebrates our divisions and isolations. As a church, we are a family. And as a family, we gather together each week for a meeting that we call worship. And during worship, we remember our covenant relationship with God and with each other. Family is never easy. It cannot be managed simply by agreeing on rules or divvying up chores, and it isn't made easier with affirmations or cookies, although in my experience, those things do help. Family is the wonderfully challenging, endlessly trying gift of being called out of our divisions and isolations to serve one another, to establish our solidarity so that all might thrive. Ted Wardlaw tells this story from his days as a pastor in Atlanta. At a presbytery meeting, he writes, it had been a long day of difficult votes. Finally, when the agenda was over, there was a motion to adjourn, and we were invited to stand for the closing prayer. Our moderator that year was particularly gifted, and when he led us in prayer, it was as if he was curling his toes over the edge of heaven itself. As we stood to pray, he kept a long silence before he uttered these words. Lord, we are forever asking you for many things, and what you are forever giving us instead is the gift of one another. Amen.